You're listening to the Impact Interviews from the Martin Agency. Join us as we explore fresh ways to break through the noise, impact culture, and shape the future of advertising. On today's episode, Martin's Chief Growth Officer, Michael Chapman, hosts a digital dialogue with award-winning marketer, academic, and cultural translator, Marcus Collins, who's shaken up companies and conferences across the globe with his knowledge of consumer behavior. Strap in to learn about reading cultural codes and moving beyond the blunt instruments brands and marketers use to describe people and measure success. So I'm, I'm talking to Marcus Collins. He is a, um, a, a, I was thinking about how to say this. He's a student, uh, professor, and preacher. Uh, the cultures of consumption. I mean, I was looking at your website. You've done an amazing amount of work in the brand space, but, you know, as we were just talking about as a, as a professor and, and um, you've done a lot in the academic space and, and being able to bring those two things together is not only um, interesting, but super inspiring. And so I can't thank you enough for, for being here and also for talking to the agency because that was an, an amazing speech. So thank you. I'm super grateful. Um, I'm very, very uh, fortunate to, to be among, you know, I, I would say, you know, people of the, the, the same community, right? You, I see the world very similarly um, in how important culture is when it comes to, uh, to market communications. So I'm grateful for to being, to bask in the coolness of the Martin Agency. Well, I'll do my best to represent it. Uh, I'm not sure I'm, I'm the most, the best representative of the coolness, but uh, we'll see. Um, you know, to your point, though, you know, we have a central mission of fighting invisibility, and we believe in the power of communications to impact culture. And I think you had a slide that summed it up the best. You know, the, the, the companies and brands that are leading culture outperform everybody else. I mean, that's just a fact. Uh, certainly between you and me and, and, the, and our agency, and I think in like-minded marketers and CMOs. But talk to me a little bit about um, th- that world, right? So, uh, because I, it, it seems so obvious to you and me. Um, but as we were talking about the past history of economics and economics linked to marketing and the fact that it was born as a rational discipline that said we are rational people, yeah. I still am dumbfounded when I run across marketers who try to compete on a product differentiation that probably only differentiates itself within its own halls. That's right. Why, why is it harder or, or hard for, for CMOs and, and marketers to understand the power of cultural relevance? Well, I think a lot of it's because the way they're taught. I mean, I, I got my MBA. I went to business school and, you know, we don't talk about culture in business school. It's sort of like one layer of how we think about segmentation. But even that one layer of segmentation, we tend to prioritize demographics, maybe season in some psychographics. And those things just don't actually describe who people are. And we're taught that from an undergraduate perspective to business school. So, and they're in the halls of the institutions that we work. So that becomes not just the norm, but the lexicon that we use. Even people who aren't marketers say, well, I don't meet the demo. Like this, it's such a part of our normal lexicon. So no surprise as practitioners, we get it wrong. And the truth of the matter is that those instruments that we use to describe people, these blunt instruments like demographics are just horrible at describing people, but yet we bet the farm on them. And even as people who are woke, right? People who understand, practitioners who understand just how limiting and inaccurate demographics are at describing people, the media that we buy to distribute our marketing communications are bought and sold or exchanged 
by demographic. So somehow or another, we're, we're sort of systematically stuck in this. Well, and maybe also, just as you say this, and this might be heresy and I might get fired for saying it, but I think the idea that we can buy our way into the cultural con- Now, clearly you can if you've got enough money, but you got to be good. You got to be great. You know, you got you to do it in a way, but if you can just get your message out there enough, I guess you'll beat people over the head enough. However, that's an awful lot of money. And so I, I feel like, you know, you've got to be able to make the case to get from cultural impact leads to, you know, sales. Because I'm also thinking about the internal job that those CMOs and marketing professionals have to do to talk to the CFO, to talk to the CEO. And if we're struggling to even make that connection, I know they're going to struggle with the CEO sure. and the CFO to make that connection. Yeah. I think a lot of it is because we're, we're measuring the wrong thing when we think about the impact of culture on sales, right? Or the culture on, on business. Like you don't, you're not measuring the culture. You're leveraging culture to influence behavior. And it's the behavior that you measure, right? So, you know, if, if, if I want to get people to, you know, to start drinking almond milk, right? For whatever it's right. I want to drink, instead of drinking dairy milk, you start drinking almond milk. Like that's what I'm focused on as a, as a marketer. And I say, okay, well, what behavior is going to be of importance of us right now? Of course, for people to buy, but if no one's even tasted almond milk, they're not going to go buy it tomorrow. So maybe we say, you know, we need to get them to sample it. And we think about numerically quantified, what does sampling do for our business? Like that's the exercise we go through. That, oh, sampling, if people sample it, there's a percentage, this percentage that they're going to actually go buy it, bet. It's like that is the business imperative. That is what we measure. Do they sample at the certain fidelity that we're looking for? Because we know that that is a proxy to consumption. Now the question becomes, so how do we get them to sample it? Well, that's when we use culture as a means to do that. So culture isn't the line item that we're measuring. Did culture do that? Instead is, did that behavior get accomplished by whatever marketing activity the brand took on? And that marketing activity is informed by the cultural characteristics of the, the target that we're looking to move. Yeah. It seems so simple when you say it, and yet I struggle every day to make it happen. But yeah, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing, man. It, it, that's the thing. I mean, like, it, it, so I'm, I'm finishing up my doctoral program at Temple University. And what I realized is what I tell my wife, what I realized is that I know nothing. Like, we, we know so little, so, so little of the world that we live in Yet, you know, the, the ask is for us to talk about things in like great certainty, right? Like it's almost binary speech and practice that we want, but the world doesn't operate that way. What we could do as marketers is mitigate risk by leveraging what we know of the behavioral sciences, leveraging what we know of the world from a scientific perspective. And the things that we say, especially behavioral sciences, it, it seems so obvious. Like, you know, people are influenced by people just like them. That makes all sense in the world. But then we don't think about that when we go to market. Instead, we say, what's the big campaign, the big TV spot, the big whatever? How do we blast them people with messages? Like you mentioned, you know, you could buy your way, perhaps, if you spend enough money. But I'd argue, like, Microsoft is spending tons of money to be culturally relevant and still are not. Well, so, and you talked a little bit about that. And the key to that um, is, you know, this idea of information versus insight. And I think one of, so as a reform strategist, now new business person and growth person, uh, but strategist at my heart, you know, I feel one of the problems with strategy and planning 
is that we spend too much time on the information mm-hmm. side. It's so easy to stand, sit behind a computer and find the statistics and find the, uh, you know, the information that sort of describes, I think, as you said, how people are behaving, you know, what they're doing. But none of it, um, and I think it almost is impossible to, to do it behind the computer because you can't walk in someone's shoes. You can't really understand the empathy of someone in their position if you don't get out and, and look for it. And that's not leading hard to. Yeah, it's the insight. I mean, but the, I felt like the deep cultural understanding that you were talking about and that you talk about in other, other places as well is they're traps too, right? Because if we go in and try to understand a community or a micro uh, culture, like, you know, you're talking about sneakerheads or cosplayers or whoever it is that sort of has the potential to change the brand trajectory, it, done wrong can feel like a manipulation, Right. You know, and so how do you, an academic, you, you know, you don't have the pressure of d- delivering, you know, sales results as a, yeah. but as a, and so you're great because you're in the middle. Um, but as a brand person, as a marketer, I, how do you um, balance that study with the, the outcome that you're really trying to look for? Right. So I think, again, this is, sorry, we talked about it earlier. This is an, in a, a thing about ethics, which we don't talk enough about in our industry. <clears throat> and honestly, we don't talk about it in business school either ethics, right? So what is the ethical line? Now, ethics is completely dispositional. What is right for you may not be right for me based upon how I see the world and my cultural subscriptions and my, my worldview informs what I think is acceptable, right? What is normal? So when we think about how do we, like, is it manipulative for us to take what we know of human behavior and leverage it to get people to buy things? Perhaps. And I, I use this thing, that, I don't know if it makes any sense, but I call it an IPL. It's the intent perception and outcomes, right? So my intent in taking what I know of human behavior and this data that I have of people to influence them to, to buy is the intent nefarious. Like, is it malicious in nature, right? Is it, do I know it's going to hurt them, but I want them to do it anyway. That's the start. Um, then the perception, how close am I to their, their seeing of their worldview? Like how close do I understand the perception they have of the world? So that when I put these things in the world, what's it going to mean to them? And then, of course, it's the outcome. So what is it? So what is the outcome? How, what is the benefit or consequence to those people? And it's the combination of those three things I think about. Because you can have, you can be like ill, like your intent is ill, like just like completely yeah. malicious, but not understand the perspective of the people. So even though your intent was malicious, it actually turned into a good thing, right? <laughs> it's like it was out of step with their perception. The outcome was actually good for them, yeah. even though it wasn't your intent. But not having the right perception of the people is what made things go awry. So I think about is that if my intentions are ill, and I understand their, their perception, and the outcome is poor for them, then I am totally to blame for that. Like that is just, that is willful, uh, that, that, that's willful misusage. That is manipulation. It's for the same tools that we use to get people to vote, to encourage people to do things that are good for society, are the same tools that are used for like recruiting people to ISIS. <laughs> the same guns that protect us are the same guns that kill us. So it's really about the intent of the user. I tried this argument with Zappos once, right? We were pitching Zappos and I talked about the fact that there is a, you know, there, there's that great book about culting of brands, but really what it, what, really what it talks about is, is, you know, Nike and some other brands that have cult followings and they right. sort of describe the followings. But what they didn't do was go back and look at the Moonies and look at all the different cults and understand how do you actually create a cult. Yeah. So I told Zappos, I said, we're going to, I said, 
the, the name cult itself there's is just devout following of an idea of principle. So there's nothing there's nothing really bad about it. It's just how people were using it. And so right. now, granted we didn't win the pitch. But <laughs> But so, right. I mean, the book you're referencing is the Doug Holt book, How Brands Become Iconic. Right? Yeah, and, yeah. Like, and a cult, cult following is just short for culture. Yeah, right. And you're right. We think about like, um, uh, what was that? Was that Jim Jones and the, the, the Kool-Aid, right? Uh, like, yeah. you think about that, like those cults are like, that's bad news bears. And because of that, our, the way we've negotiated what cult means is always a negative thing. Yeah. But when we talk about companies having cult-like followings, like Google, Apple, Etc. It's not as bad, yeah. right? Uh, so you're, you're you're right. You're right. Like these are things that we have legitimated what cult means, but it's about it, the same things that hurt people are the same things that help people. It all depends on the intent, right. the perspective, and ultimately the outcomes. At least yeah. in my eyes. Well, talk to me a little bit about um, you know another thing that we've um, talked a lot about the agency is, is the interplay of culture and community. Um, and, mm-hmm. and these, the, and, and I would equate community to microcultures, right? So these, these yep. small groups of people that have a passion point that, that holds them together and they have different leaders, they have different behaviors and they have different signals that you can sort of look for and, and understand better. Can you talk a little bit about me? As I know you talk something, you know, about that in some places. Can you talk a little bit about the interplay of community and culture and how those two things inter- inform each other? Absolutely, absolutely. So culture is the governing operating system for communities. The beliefs that we hold, the artifacts that have meaning, the language that we use, the behaviors that are normative, right? The shared norms. Like, though that that is the governing operating system for communities. We subscribe to communities. That is, I with full volition say, I want to be a part of this because I believe, right? And then therefore I do the things that are normative to stay in good standings with the community. And you're right. Sometimes referred to as microcultures, sometimes referred to as subcultures, sometimes referred to as brand communities, brand fans, like all of these different language. The, the nomenclature that I use uh, is in the field of study that, I, that I'm committed to, which is cultures of consumption, right? That is, these are groups of people that not only subscribe to the same sort of consumption activity, right? Like, you know, we, we love sneakers, we buy sneakers, or we love, um, I don't know, we, we, we love techs or techies or whatever, right? I um, know do we subscribe to the same consumption activity, but there are cultural characteristics of what it means to be like me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I just started doing a show with uh, Social Media Week Plus. It used to be like the, the conference. They now started this um, a streaming platform and I, I just started the show called uh, C3, Cultures, Consumptions, and Communities. Yeah. Where essentially every episode, my guest and my, my co-host and I, we bring on a new guest, and we discuss a culture of consumption that they are affiliated with. I haven't seen the actual episode, or maybe it's not out, but I saw the the preview for the sneakerhead one when they showed the. I'm not going to say which one, but the magazine. Yeah. The woman. <laughs> yes. Like we're sneaker headquarters, and the woman was wearing Birkenstocks. I think. Like Crocs. It's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Crocs. <laughs> right. So any sneakerhead would see that, like, yo, fam, no, that's not, no, that's not a real thing, right? And. To your point, like within these communities, you know, there are norms, what is acceptable, what is not. And the truth of the matter is that we're all a part of these communities, right? Like we are, we navigate this world through the communities that we subscribe to and our behaviors are governed by 
the cultural characteristics that are normative among them. And the important part to know is that they're not static. Like in every conversation, every dialogue, every exchange that we have, whether it's like a legit conversation that you and I are having or something that you post, a meme, a video that you share, like all these different cultural texts are helping us sort of create the discourse to help us navigate the evaluation of ideas, products, brands, people, organizations, institutions, and whether we legitimate it. Like whether it becomes legitimate and then becomes normal. And every, like almost everything we do, man, when you walk outside pre-COVID, of course, you walk outside <laughs> with like a new outfit on and you're trying a new thing, you're basically saying, hey, guys, what are you guys, are you guys with this? What do you think? And your friends go, Michael, I love that shirt on you. And you're like, I know, right? Michael, you look so, oh, Michael. I'm like, and it becomes normal. Like, A, you feel like I have been sort of approved by my people. And your people see that and say, now they are influenced to buy something or wear something that is of that ilk because they have negotiated collectively that this is okay, this is acceptable. You know, I, and as you talk about cultures of consumption, that probably that might even answer my, um, the, you know, the first couple of thoughts we were having about um, the, eth- you know, the ethics behind this. I mean, you're studying something by its very nature is commercial, right? I mean, the, the, you know, it's consumption. Um, and therefore, you go in with the intent of like, I, you are defining this community by its consumption of, a, of something. Now, obviously, yeah. it doesn't always have to be commercial, I guess, but sneakers are, are things we can sell and buy. Right. But there's still people, though. That's I mean, right. I think, I think it's your point is that, like, you know, there is some ethics to this. We can't write them off and say, hey, they're buying this capitalism. Like, I think that is a flippant and probably irresponsible thing. And honestly, I think the more informed we are about our level of influence, the more responsible we are to do the right thing. You know, it's, um, I was talking with someone the other day, and um, I was saying, it's like, you know, what a great time to be an advertiser right now like in the middle of COVID-19, in the middle of like, you know, this election season, you know, this like civil unrest around, you know, uh, systemic racism. And what an amazing time to be an advertiser. And he looked at me like, what are you talking, what are you talking about? In fact, he was like, yo, like I'm actually, my clients aren't spending money. What do you mean? And I was like, think about what our job is as marketers. Like our job is to get people to move. How do we do that? Well, how do we get people to move? A lot of it is about legitimation. Like, what is legitimate? What is acceptable between people like us, right? Understand the cultural characteristics that we say, hey, we use information, we use messaging, we use iconography, we use people, endorsers, sponsors, et cetera, to help legitimize something. What if we as a community, as a professional community, as an industry, say, let's help the normalization of masks, hmm. leverage everything we know about human behavior to get people to do Good things. What if we said, you know, we're going to let's leverage everything we know to to drive people to go vote despite the voter suppression that is at the foot of especially marginalized communities or that, you know, we're going to to really tackle these racial injustices that exist in the institutions that we that we are part of. Like like that is like that's a superpower that we have. Right. And I think that the better we are at using the superpower to sell things like the more responsibility we have to do things in the communities that we operate in to help them too. I think it's important and buried in that was what you said at the beginning is, is that we have power and we can do good with it. And I think that yeah. that's, that's an, an amazing thing that I don't, you know, that maybe not everyone always recognizes. 
What, so, so tell me a little bit um, about what's next for you. I mean, you said you were finishing your doctorate at Temple. You've got, you know, you, you couldn't have more iron in the, in the fire. I can say that. I mean, I, I've never, you know, lot, lots of stuff going on um, in your life. So what, to what end and what are you doing next? Yeah, so, uh, so I'm finishing up my doctorate prayerfully. I've qualifying exams are done. Um, I'm defending my proposal in October. And if everything goes well, I'll be defending my dissertation in May. Hope I didn't just jinx it, but that's the plan. That's the plan. And I'll be Dr. Collins come, uh, come May 2021. But, you know, the hope is to really like, like I really want to nest myself in this intersection of academia and practice, like yeah. bridge the academic practitioner gap. Um, so I'll, I'll always have a foot in academia, you know, prayerfully. I'll still stay at the Ross School of Business, University of Michigan, um, because I'm, I'm 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 a product of of U of M. But also, I just I like the idea, like the the thrive the the driving ethos of of Ross as an institution is that we think that like you can make a better world through better business. That mm. we can actually make an impact. So things we were talking about earlier, we can make an impact in the world by changing the way that we approach business. We do good business, we make good in the world. And I, I subscribe to that. So I feel like at home in a place like Ross and that we have these amazing students, amazing community. So the hope is that I'll still be at Ross um, teaching and I'll still put things in the world. I mean, right now I work with clients sort of on a, like a consultancy sort of basis, which is great, which is nice. I have really great clients who do, who do really awesome things with a lot of ambition and, and audacity and what they want to get done. So I'll always have those two things. But once the dissertation is done, I'll probably write a book, kind of keep talking, do the thing, you know, do all the things. Like create more text is ultimately what I want. Uh, and you're right, a lot of fires, a lot, a lot of irons in the fires. But here's why. And I'll, and I'll be honest. Here's why. You know, I feel in just full transparency, like I feel like I'm six years behind everybody. Because when I, I, I studied engineering undergrad, I did materials engineering at Michigan. Uh, because I thought polymers were cool, even though I wouldn't describe it as such today, but they are very interesting. Um, and so when I finished my engineering degree, so my parents were like, you're not dropping out of engineering, you're an engineer, period. So when I graduated, I literally gave them my degree, like it's on their wall. I don't even have that degree. It's on my parents' wall. Um, and I started a music company with a, with a buddy of mine. And it was like semi-successful. It would be, we had some successes, some bright spots, but as the industry started to downturn, our, our company start to unwind and I end up going back to school, but I did that for five and a half, six years. So I'm like, as a marketer, like I feel like six years behind everybody, um, at least my peers. So I, I'm just going hard. And plus, you know, on a somber note, you know, with COVID-19, I had a really, a really good friend of mine who passed like in the early months of it, like March 24th, I think is when Marlo passed, a guy named Marlo Stoudemire went to high school together. Um, he was like a, he was like a, he was a pillar in Detroit. Like this is like, he's like a larger than life guy in Detroit, healthy, married, two kids. Like he's a great dude, young, he's like 43. And he died from COVID, man. And it was like a Rock Hudson moment for me. And I just, and I went back to this book that I read a few years ago and a quote who's who, someone who quoted later, DJ Jazzy Jess of all people who also got COVID. He's like, man, you got to die empty. Mm. Like, you, like tomorrow's not promised for anybody. Like we know that, right? That's something we say, especially like in a in a in a religious text. Like no one knows, you know, what tomorrow's going to be, so you never know. But after Marlo passed, it just changed everything for me. And I was like, man, I'm going to go hard on every any idea that I have. I'm putting it in the world. Any like I'm going to completely exercise myself until I got nothing left. 
Like I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go to the grave as morbid as it sounds with like the idea that I never put on paper or the, the talk that I never gave or the, the, the whatever, like I, I got to put things in the world. Think, so for me, yeah, I'm running on borrowed time and I'm just running hard. I mean, I think we always look for the benefit in something like this. And that, that is definitely a bit of benefit. There's no plan. What the hell is going to happen next? You don't know if you're going to be here. You don't know if the economy is going to be here. You don't know if the, those around you are going to be around. So, you know, do what you can while you can. I love it. You know, uh, this has been inspiring, educational. Um, it's given me a, certainly something to shoot for, and I, I got to get more irons in the fire. And I, I hope that um, you didn't jinx yourself. And maybe when you come back, you'll, you'll come back and, and talk to us as Dr. Collins. So, yeah, preferably. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it, Michael. Thank, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Impact Interviews. If you'd like to reach out, send us an email at impact at martinagency.com. The music you heard is I Crush the Mountainside by Space Bomb House Band.